0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim with me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as we wrap up the confessions that's right after over probably more than a year uh, we have been recording episodes on Saint Augustine's 13 book work called The Confessions and we are finally finished Uh, so this episode is a little long it's about an hour and a half Uh, we have a lot of conversation over uh, how Augustine understands reading scripture and what the place of the community is in reading scripture And then we talk about our overall thoughts on the book and what we've learned and how we've um, what we've enjoyed about it and those sorts of things. So. I hope that you uh, appreciate this episode. Um, you can give us a rating on iTunes. We appreciate it. Uh, we're near 50 ratings. We're over 500 likes on Facebook. Um, and so we appreciate the, the community that we've created around this podcast. I will also be uh, releasing episodes that come from my class that I'm teaching called Africans Against the World. Uh, so uh, hopefully you'll find that uh, enjoyable. And uh, we do have some more uh, recording that we're going to do between the three of us. Um, Hopefully in the next week or two, um, our schedules have gotten a little bit cramped, but that should be coming out soon. So uh, rate us, review us, like us. Um, We appreciate all and any kind of support or encouragement um, and helps us know that there are people listening and that's always nice. So I hope you enjoy this episode and we'll uh, let you know what the next thing's going to be at the end of this podcast. Well, we're at the end, gentlemen. We we've, This is our last podcast that we are going to record together on the confessions. I think Tom figured out that we have been talking about
1: this book on and off for a year and a half. Um, just about. Is that right, Tom? Yes, that is correct. Since July. Oh, shoot. June or July. I forget which month of 2018. Yeah. So it's 2020 now, and we are coming
0: to the end. Uh, The book is not as long as we've made it, which that alone scares me if we ever try to do City of God. I think if we do – Coming
1: soon, City of God, in just under seven years. <laughs> yeah, good. I, we, will, we
0: will have to exert uh, City of God if we do City of God. Um, but uh, I, I've got some some material for that if we want to do that at some point. Actually, uh, at the end of this podcast, we're going to talk about um, future directions. So stay tuned for that of what you can expect to hear from us next. Uh, but we're, we're dealing with books 12 and 13. so this is the conclusion of the confessions and as with the previous books it's a little bit um, strange you might think uh, when we could, when you know oftentimes the confessions is characterized as an autobiography um, and so that is something that um, you know modern people do it is in a way the, the, like the greatest example of someone writing on their own life. But that part of the Confessions only takes up nine books, and it is, of course, 13. Uh, So then Augustine turns in what seems like a strange turn to talk in book 10 about memory, book 11 about time. And then here in book 12, he's going to talk about Genesis 1 um, and in the beginning. And I I think, you know, one way uh, James K. Smith says that we should think about this as uh, his confessions going forward. Um, I I don't know how helpful I find that. Like this is him confessing what's going on right now because we get almost no details of his life. Um, So I find that characterization of these last books a little strange. Um, but what I do th- I think in one way they're, they're kind of his, um, they're almost what we would normally call like introductory material. So how do I know who God is? How do I know where we, where we all came from? How does this work in the concept of time? And how do I remember this? You know, these kind of like bigger philosophical questions in a way lay the groundwork for how he's going to tell his story as a confession, um, and another theologian I like says that c- learning to confess is on its own a theological achievement. Like, actually, you have to learn how to confess. So this is an, an autobiography. He's not just telling the events as they happen. He's telling the events as they are situated within the life of God. Um, and so they're confessing sin um, because sin and the person of Augustine and his life he sees as a like pale reflection on God's perfection. Um, And so what he learns to confess about his life takes time. And so part of what he's doing in all of this is saying, you know, book 12 is in a way, how does scripture specifically Genesis one help us see the grandeur of God and the smallness of us. Um, And so I think, you know, and then how do we reach the scriptures and how do the scriptures teach us this? So that's, you know, maybe one one way to frame it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys respond to that um, if you like, and then we can go through some of the, the questions that, that I have and you
1: have. Yeah, it really, books 12 and 13, or uh, yeah, 12 and 13 really just seem like different books. Um, I wouldn't even think of it as an introduction to something else. I would look at them rather as, Basically, chapters one and two of a commentary on Genesis, uh, a really, really long commentary on Genesis, um, unless he, of course, shortens up some of the future chapters. Uh, it, it's just so hard for me to place why this goes as an addendum to his confessions. Uh, I, I, I just can't even explain how it really connects. I, Unless he just I mean, I, I think the one thing we could perhaps consider is. That Augustine with the Confessions is really doing a kind of art form that hasn't really been tried before. You know this idea of autobiography. And wasn't really tried again, as far as I can tell. What's that? And wasn't
0: really tried again, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. I guess I'm just thinking if we think of it as like an autobiography in the traditional sense. Yeah. Um, and in that, and maybe that's like why we're having a hard time considering this is because I can't help but interpret it as an autobiography because that's a very common kind of art form in my world um and so maybe he just didn't have those kinds of categories and so he just wrote about pretty much whatever he pleased right (laughs) and it just so happened that after telling his story he felt like writing about genesis my only question is why he wouldn't have kept going but yeah yeah, well,
0: and, and one thing I didn't say, Book 12 basically covers Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Yes. Um, and, and then he goes back to it a little bit in Book 13 still. Yes. Um, <laughs>
2: yep.
0: So it's yeah. two verses from Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> I, st-
2: I started reading Book 12 and I and – I, like the part – Oh geez, I don't know how to talk about these little sections, but like the little section two in at the beginning of book twelve, he starts with humbly my tongue confesses. I'm like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. Well this is the confessions. But then it's just, yeah, it's basically that you created the earth and now I'm gonna do some metaphysics. And then it's- yeah. <laughs> and so I don't know if he's I don't know if he thinks of this as confessions because like if he genuinely does in the sense that like he is just sort of like free associating and like these are things he felt like were you know you know that his inner thoughts that he really wanted to like get out there about these topics but in terms of yeah how they're um, how it fits with the rest it it was i agree with you tom it's like this could just be you could just lop this off And, you know, in, like, modern parlance, he could just basically publish this as its own thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but.
0: Well, Genesis, it's also, I mean, just in the, like, um, uh, Augustinian canon or something, um, Augustine goes on to write about Genesis in three works dedicated to Genesis. No, four. Four works that are dedicated to Genesis, one of which he, one or two of which he considers incomplete, um, and then he really talks about Genesis a fair bit in the City of God as well. So he has parts of si- major parts of six books um, that he just talks about Genesis one, <laughs> which is just mind boggling. Also interesting now that I'm saying that. He's obsessed with – this is really interesting. So I've never thought about it. He's obsessed with Genesis in his writings, but he almost never preaches about Genesis. That's,
1: that's weird. weird. That is uh, really weird. Um, maybe, maybe he's wrestling with its meaning because that's kind of sort of what I gathered with. I mean it seems to me that his purpose in chapter 12 is to resolve the tension with Genesis – 1-2 uh, where it says the earth was formless and void that tension with verse 1 which is that God made the heavens and the earth and so it's like how can he make it and it be formless and void and that's I think why it ends up being such a metaphysical reflection because he's trying to resolve how something can exist and be formless right? That's um, right. That
0: and, is a key question for him yeah. for sure
1: yeah and so maybe the reason he doesn't preach on it because I know, I mean, I'm a preacher and when I preach, I try to avoid preaching on topics that I don't feel super confident in um, unless I, and I guess I've done this from time to time. I I might do a sermon where it's like more of a trying to make you think kind of sermon, you know, raising questions. But even then I want to make sure I have a key point to make. And so maybe he doesn't preach on it because he does something similar where he's like, I want to preach on what I'm confident in. And I want to instead write and, as, a, as a means of reasoning through something on things that I'm not so confident in. Because like even at the end of book 12, he spends a good chunk of time talking about alternative interpretations and talking about why it's fair to interpret these maybe differently than he takes it. You know? So it's, like, it's almost like he's not confident and he's just trying to work through things. I don't know. Maybe that, that at least was my impression.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it's a helpful frame for if, you know, for anyone who would go to read this book, what you just said, remember that this is him really exploring some stuff. Um, and the one, the one other thing that I would say, uh, to keep in mind, uh, that we could call this Augustinian spirituality, if you like, um, and it's something like – so for Augustine, remember that the goal of the Christian life is what's called the beatific vision. Um, and the beatific vision is God, like looking at God in God's self. Um, and so for Augustine, the greatest achievement – or not the greatest achievement. The purpose of all of life um, is to see God for who God is. Um, and so part of what confession does – so confession, remember, is a twofold word. It's both a um, – it, it does mean to witness to your sins, to recognize what your sins are, but it also has the sense of praise, to praise God for who God is. So in confessing, part of what you're doing is saying, I know who God is and this is the kind of great thing that God is and also when i see god for who god is i see my pale reflections of that um and so part so for augustine what it means to achieve the beatific vision at early in his life he seems to think that it can be achieved while on earth uh but but as he sort of matures or something as he grows older he recognizes that it's an eschatological goal that it's only something that happens at the end uh that people can see god for who god is but in order to get there we have to pare away the sin we have to purify our mind's eye augustine will say i'm not 100 percent sure if augustine is the first one to use the phrase the mind's eye but it is a, a phrase that augustine uses a lot and so what sin does is sort of clouds our um, our vision, our um, um, intellectual vision. Um, and so confessing is part of that cleaning away, clearing away so that our mind can have a full vision. Um, and so every time that we sin, every time that we get embroiled in sin, what we're doing is just clouding our vision so we can't see God. Um, so life is a journey, a journey towards this perfect vision, um, and, uh, of understanding. Um, and r- remember for, for Augustine, like Plato, um, understanding is intimately connected with seeing. Um, and, and so to understand is to see, um, and so to see clearly requires that your lens, uh, be pure. Uh, but Augustine also knows from scripture that Paul says, you know, now we see in a mirror dimly. Uh, and so Augustine will bring that up and say, this is sin, this is life and this broken body we can't see perfectly. Mm. So in a sense, a lot of these books are still his pursuit of that vision, which never, which never
1: actually comes. Mm. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, and, and that was something that I found kind of, uh, I don't know I mean I found it something the kind of thing that you know Christians just kind of always take for granted right that that vision never comes this side of heaven and wow. yet it almost felt like a tension with earlier stuff that he wrote in the book right and I, I can't it's been so long that I can't <laughs> yeah. identify any particular pieces but it you know I, I there's so much of the so much of his of his confessions of his story that seems to identify uh, his his coming to christ as this true culmination where he finally reach, like achieves what he had been looking for his whole life and maybe this is how these tie together maybe it's that he now knows that he never fully achieves that vision this side of heaven and so he looks forward to that, the the heaven of heavens, as he refers to, That's right. you know, uh, as the place where he finally will really and fully achieve um, what he had all so long ago really set out to find. Right. And so maybe the reflection on Genesis 1.1 is just a reflection on what the heaven of heavens is, which is ultimately where his soul will finally see God face to face. I don't know. Just kind of a thought
2: interesting now that makes more sense of this um this book now how that you say that at least thinking of it that way
0: yeah and i think yeah. the other so one other way that augustine will uh talk a little bit about this is uh well we'll get to in book 13 he says my love is my weight um and so uh, part of what i think he feels in his life is that this we you know his uh uh, part of it's a little bit hard because it's tied up at least in the question of how um, platonic he is. Um, but for what? I, but but that question aside for a moment, I'll just try to explain it this way. Augustine thinks that in this life, the desire for the vision um, and its sort of frustration, its lack of fulfillment, um, increases the longing, and so uh, prepares you for more joy when you get there. So. So the, the, so what one might think that Augustine's attempts to write all these commentaries on Genesis um, and never quite saying the thing that he wanted to say was a failure and a futile attempt. But Augustine's sort of answer to that, Augustine's response to that is to say, but in fact, every attempt that doesn't quite get there just increases my longing for that. And so my weight, my love for that thing um, grows. Mm. Um, and and so I have more weight uh, because that longing and that desire are, are so much, uh, are so extended. Mm. Yeah, and you know we might not find that compelling. Um, yeah. I can see a lot of people being really like annoyed uh, by that as a solution. Like, okay, so we just desire more, but we'll never get there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, my- I, mean, I,
1: think, I, I think what people would look at it is as, as a cop out, right? I think you could, you know, the skeptic, uh, obviously not a Christian, but the skeptic might look at at this whole thing as, okay, you started off looking for this thing. And really, you just never found it, right? You just found something that tells you why you never found it in a way that gives you a hope that you will someday find it. Yeah. Right? And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can... I don't agree with that, but I understand, you know, I I can see where reasonably they might come to that conclusion.
2: Yeah. I mean, that there is, I guess... If he is being inspired by plato in ways it does make sense though since plato also sort of he it didn't see he didn't seem hopeful for like you know sort of achieving epistemic certainty and with regards to any uh you know supposed piece of knowledge um in this life um there's this weird passage where he describes like realizing realizing that the forms are what really exist as being like you know i think he uses the metaphor of being hit by lightning or something but i i don't i honestly don't remember but it or it's like a burning flame or something like this but he basically he uses this metaphor of like it's very sudden and it comes upon you and and i don't know if i don't know if augustine um, cause obviously at this point we've talked about this before, but at this point he still has a pretty platonic view of the soul and how it must cognize the world. And so maybe he's just attempting to give it more, I guess it's more hopeful than Plato though, because there is sort of a promise of like this ultimate vision of truth or something that's sort of, um, seems it seems more hopeful because it's like a personal loving being that one day guarantees this this a vision I don't know, but
0: well he he does say so um at, at, okay, so like reading just f- the very first part of book twelve, the very end of book um so one my mind says one one, and just before two two the last sentence mine says For uh, everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks will find, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Okay, so familiar. Uh, But then he says, these are your promises, and who fears being cheated when truth itself is making the promise? Mm. So so for Augustine, Augustine absolutely does agree with Tom that the Platonists get the closest to um, sort of approximating the world as it is, but he thinks that they're always deficient. Um, because there is, we don't actually get the truth that the Platonists think that we might get this side of eternity. Um, and he also doesn't think that they actually provide a way for us to bridge the gap. Um, and, and also, it's only the purview of the initiated in philosophy. Um, and so what Augustine wants to say is that for those that aren't intellectually capable, aren't mentally capable in the same way, there has to be... Uh, Because God created everyone good, everyone has to be able to achieve this vision. Um, And so how is it that his mother can also achieve this vision who doesn't have the intellectual and mental capabilities that Augustine does or that Plato does? And so Augustine thinks that, yeah, what we actually have is revelation that we have to trust. We don't know for certain. Um, we have to trust in that revelation. But if we but we can know in that insofar as we have the Holy Spirit as a promise that we will actually get there. Hmm. Uh, so that promise, that truth is, uh, in other places, he'll say that's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is kind of a a a down payment um, on uh, the the future deliverance of the full. Um, And so we have that now. So we have no reason to fear because we have the spirit. Um, So we will get there um, and we know that we're not there, but but, but yeah, we have the Holy Spirit. So all of that, and the Holy Spirit is the the spirit of Christ. So Christ has to come. So the thing that the Platonists don't have is a humble God. Uh, They don't have a humble God who bridges the gap. This is why the mediator is so important. Um, getting from the realm of the body to the realm of God, um, or getting through the realm of sinful flesh. I'm going to say it that way. Um, (laughs) going from the realm of sinful flesh, uh, to the realm of perfect vision, um, which for Augustine is corporeal, um, is bodily. Um, it's just the, it's just the cleanse, the perfect body. Um, so to get there, that's why we need Christ the mediator and the Platonists don't have Christ the mediator
2: right and and i guess er, even for aristotle the telos of a human is sort of to what would it be cultivate rational activity essentially to sort of use your your rational faculties and to like i like to think of it as like maximizing though i doubt aristotle would have thought of it that way but um you know he thinks that since that's the faculty that's particular to humans that's sort of our our ultimate end that's our final cause you might say right and so that's the only way to really achieve eudaimonia um at least that's that's one interpretation of aristotle um and so it seems like making our true end to sort of like enjoy god in a beatific vision um is obviously a a more, I think at least, a more hopeful thing to say to people because um, even when I just tell, like, Phil 101, you know, I tell, like, this room of 20-year-old students, like, so the only way to really be happy, according to Aristotle, (laughs) is to basically, you know, read philosophy all day and um, make sure you, uh, you know, maximize your rationality in some sense and they're just like yeah great so some philosopher who's like really digging his you know his bookishness basically tells us all that that's the only way to be happy but so yeah it it comes across as also like insanely biased the bunch of philosophers would pick that activity as like the way to achieve happiness whereas yeah um sort of Bridging the gap is, well, there's a way in which doing this activity lets us see dimly some of these things you might say, but we, but literally the actual beatific vision, that's just achieved by all and it's surely through asking and it's by God's grace. And so that's, that, I think that's a cool. And it requires humility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's a, it's a more hopeful message, uh, in a, in a way but it's also just less what would you say um ivory tower ish um yeah elitist and yeah anyway you
1: know, one one thing um, ahead, you said, yeah one thing you said a second ago chad that just kind of struck me that might strike our readers you were referencing you know um Aristotle's thoughts on kind of the Holy Spirit as a down payment or kind of the guarantee of our ultimate inheritance. And many of our readers, of course, if you're familiar with scripture would know, you might sit there and go, oh, that's just Ephesians 1, 12, 13, 14, you know, in there. And the, what I appreciated about that is when you read Augustine, if you guys haven't read Augustine at home, like as you're reading, he often is literally just stringing together Bible verses Almost as if they are his own thoughts, right? Almost okay. like he's trying to, uh, trying to think with the thoughts of Scripture or with the mind of God, and you know, if you will. So it just kind of struck me as you said that I was like, well, Chad, that's just the Bible, but that's the way he spoke. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a good way to put it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah this this copy
2: actually of the confessions I have will often put anything from the Bible in italics and there's just whole passages where it's like it'll just be a few words and then a few of his own words and then just a few of the Bible and then a few of his own words and a few of the Bible it's like he's just yeah he's just peppering it in the whole time it's kind of neat to read actually
0: yeah um so speaking of scripture I'll use this as my uh uh, <laughs> Good segue. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
0: so, I, I, I guess there, there are a couple different ways that we could go into this. Um, but so Augustine will say some interesting things, and some of it touches maybe on conversations um, that uh, that we have had in, in this podcast, or I've also had with uh, my friend Eric, who's I went to seminary with. Uh, but it's this question of authorial intent. Um, and so Augustine is trying to figure out what Genesis means. And it's interesting that, so sometimes, uh, so I, I, I don't know, I can't remember how often this podcast I've referenced it, but a lot of modern scriptural interpretation, the goal is what's called the historic, grammatical historical reading. Um, so you say, okay, what does uh, Genesis 1 mean? In the beginning, God created in the heavens and the earth. And, you know, uh, and it was formless and void. Uh, so, like, what. The grammatical historical readings of the present day try to do is say who wrote this, what did they they intend, what was their context, what was going on around them, Um, and there is only one right reading, Um, and it is is the literal intention of the author – in their context. And so this is how this like from this arises theories about multiple authorship of Genesis. I don't know if you've ever, you know, if, if our readers have heard this, but, um, you know, one bell uh, this German uh, biblical critics said there were four different people who wrote Genesis. And, you know, I think at last count, someone proposed 30 at this point. Um, so these just proliferate. Um, but Augustine does say that there is an authorial intent. Um, and so Augustine maybe looks a little bit like a German critic when he goes after trying to figure out what, and he thinks that the, uh, author is Moses, which the, the German critics would have denied. Um, but, uh, but he does think that that's a question that you can ask, but he doesn't think it's the only question worth asking. Um, and he's actually not even quite sure in a lot of cases that we'll ever, we'll ever be able to figure it out. Um, and so it doesn't really matter who said it. Um, what matters is, is that God said it. Um, and I'm trying to find uh, – it's, it's hard. He doesn't say it in a succinct way, but he says it at various points. Um, th- you know, he says, this is what I infer in, ch- in chapter 13. Um, this is what I infer when I hear your scripture saying in the beginning. Um, and uh, and this is what I infer. And then he says, but, you know, other people have suggested other things. Um, and he doesn't want to – so what's interesting to me about Augustine uh, is that he doesn't want to deny that there are multiple good readings of scripture, um, true readings of scripture um and in uh, chapter 14 17 in my book but maybe just 14 on some of yours he says no he did not want your reading of them to be understood but rather another reading the one which we declare with you to judge us God of all humanity my response to such people is as follows um uh, you will surely not declare false the facts that truth speaks in a firm voice to my inward hearing um concerning the true eternity of the creator um, so what is he? He's saying that there are lots of people who propose readings, but God teaches us in our hearts. Um, and so there may be a true there. You know there. In a way, there are multiple true readings. But what makes it true um, is that you commune with God through the text. Um, and so in a way, it's almost irrespective of the authorial intent, but not entirely.
1: Hmm. I. Uh, there's a whole bunch you said that I want to address. like one is kind of a question uh, for clarification. Um, with regards to so I guess I'll start kind of with that. You mentioned well, so you kind of in my mind conflated a couple of things, okay? Um, with and this is really just for clarification. by talking about historical, grammatical, and wellhausen almost sounding like they were the same. Because my understanding is that the historical grammatical approach is essentially what modern evangelicals and fundamentalists kind of embrace. And the historical critical or higher critical approach is what like Wellhausen and modern academia tend to embrace, which I could see how they could be easily conflated because they – it's kind of confusing to a certain degree how they differ. And so maybe this is part of where it's like a question for you that you would probably be more primed to answer as I haven't dealt with higher academic interpretation in a long time. But at least kind of at the popular level, you have kind of your pop theologians, you know, fundamentalist evangelicals who are basically, you know, slamming their hands on the on the lectern saying – Uh, you have to interpret this according to the author's intent. It's the only right way to understand the scripture. Um, And then the historical critical approach, the academic approach anyway, does also really seek to understand authorial intent um, and to try to figure out what the, you know, really who the first author or who the author was, where they... um, the world they inhabited, what their culture was, to try to understand what the text is really saying. So I see how those are very similar. The only distinction I've ever been able to make between the two is that the fundamentalists seem to espouse the historical grammatical and thus insist essentially, kind of maybe oddly, that the traditional author and the traditional context is correct and cannot be disputed. And then what their intention is is what we have to take for kind of normative for the text. Like, this is what you have to believe. Whereas the historical critical is, we want to know what the author intended, and to do that we have to understand the culture, and we have to understand the times, and we have to try to figure out who the author is, because we're not going to take it face value that the tradition is correct. That's kind of how I made the distinction. Um, but I'm not, I've never been super clear on why there's that distinction, but there, but what I can say is from the evangelical side, there's a very clear fight against the academic side. Like the evangelical side really wants to uphold that historical grammatical, um, over and against that other, that other bunch. So I guess I start there.
0: So that, yeah, that's an important point. I, Yeah, I launched in (laughs) – I I should have – I definitely should have uh, uh, sorted that out before we get to Augustine's own approach. Uh, But I think it's important for different ways to consider what the scriptural text means, which is what he's trying to figure out. Um, Yeah. Okay, so – So on my my view, those are two sides of the same coin. Like they both fall prey to the the, the sort of problem of modern enlightenment interpretation. Mm. Um, And what I think is uh, ultimately Augustine and the pre-moderns provide us a better way forward um, and want to get us out of this impasse um, that seems to be the only way to resolve a dispute over what a text means is to figure out what the author meant um, and as it, uh, the human author intended. Uh, so yeah, so that's what, I mean, you're right. So I think one way to be fair would be to say that sort of, um, modernist liberals in the German higher critical mode, um, you know, they're, yeah, they want to totally, uh, jettison, um, the, like the belief that Moses might have written Genesis or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, and sort of evangelicals who want to do grammatical historical readings are trying to find ways to be uh, – are trying to find ways to say that Moses still wrote it um, and then try to provide um, adequate historical r- rationale for why that's still the case. Yeah. Uh, is that – so what I – but what I end up – sort of my problem with both of those is they assume that scripture only means one thing. Um, and I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, and more than that, I think both of them ignore the fact that I that the text is meant to be a place where we encounter God, not Moses. Um, and I think if we ask, if we only ask the question, what did Moses intend, or what did the Yahwehist, the uh, you know the supposed writer from the Germans. Um, of of part of the text, if we only think what are the Elohist or whoever, if we only think that, uh, what did they intend, we miss entirely the question of how do we encounter God here. Yeah, um, and that is what I think Augustine wants us to ask.
1: Okay, interesting. So that's where I had a contention. However, I want to qualify my contention by simply pointing out that. Uh, I literally read this yesterday and today. I At times, my mind wandered and I didn't pick things up. And you are an Augustinian scholar, so far be it from me to really... But at least the way I read what he was saying, because as I was reading it, I was like, oh, goodness. He seems to take very much the position of the... Basically, the modern evangelical that... We have to figure out what the author intended and that when we're debating about whether or not the the passage is true, we're debating as to what the author's intent was. That's that's at least how I saw it or how I read it. But then also, of course, it seemed that he went into and this is just my line, my through line. Please, if you have a passage that could kind of show me where I'm wrong, that'd be great. And obviously, I acknowledge that. I could be totally off base here. But what I picked up from the reading was that he said, I have one reading and I talked to other guys and they have other readings. And what we really want to figure out is what did Moses, because he uses Moses's example, really intend. That's our goal. But then he says, who knows if Moses didn't maybe intend for both of our versions to be. Yeah interpreted. So so he was open to multiple interpretations for sure, but he did seem to tie those multiple interpretations to what Moses' intention was. Um that's just how I perceived it, but I could be wrong on that.
2: Well there is that part it's in twelve twenty-five when he says let no one irritate me further by saying Moses did not mean what you say. And he sort of gives this little uh argument. I guess it's like a little dilemma, because he he basically says people are going to say that for one of two reasons, either because they're proud um, or because they actually care about the truth. So he says they have no knowledge of the thoughts in his mind, Moses's mind, but they are in love with their own opinion, not because they're true, but because they are their own. And then he basically goes, and if that's not the case, then they ought to just be cool with my opinion anyway. Like, if they actually think that this was moses's opinion but but it's because they think you know basically they've uncovered some truth um then my my own interpretation should also be acceptable to them um otherwise they're just doing it out of their own sort of pride and he he says he actually says like if moses were to like yeah where where is this part oh yeah it says even if moses were to appear to us and say this is what i meant we should not see his thoughts, but would simply believe his word. Let us not, therefore, go beyond what is laid down for us, one man slighting another out of partiality for someone else. Just let us love the Lord our God with our whole heart and our whole soul and whole mind and our neighbor as ourselves. Whatever Moses meant in his books, unless we believe that he meant it to be understood in the spirit of these two precepts of charity, we are treating God as a liar, for we attribute to his servant thoughts at variance with his teaching." I was like, oh, so yeah, he really wants kind of what you just said, Tom, he really wants, and he like says this about his own writings. Like if I was to write something, I would want it to be written in this way, but he wants it to be, he wants like all the truths God's trying to communicate through Moses to be available to everyone.
1: Yes. Um, well, and yeah. also Trevor, and one of the things I love about that past, that passage is beautiful. What I love about, what you read there is because it's like Augustine, it seems is like he raises the question who's to say Moses and God, of course, that's the big question, but God through Moses didn't want many of these different interpretations to be held. Um, But then he, that emphasis on the fact that, but this conversational mode that we have of discussing and arguing it out is beautiful. If done in love, and that one thing we know we can't do is argue about this passage in an unloving way, because if we do that, we clearly are at variance with Moses' own view on love, right? So whatever else we might be disagreeing about, clearly we have to love each other because Moses would have wanted in the text to communicate that we need to love each other regardless, um, which I thought was awesome, just kind of a, a, a beautiful way to think of of what our job as Christian thinkers uh, is, which is to engage each other and sometimes contradict and sometimes argue, but to do it always in love. Yeah,
2: and, but also just this is—I found this just funny. I I read it in a humorous way. In that same section, he's like, you know, he's like, let no one irritate me further by saying this, and he, then he goes oh life of the poor oh my god in whose bosom there is no contradiction i beg you to water my heart with the rain of forbearance
1: so that i may bear with such people and patience
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep well you can't nobody can say they do it perfectly right <laughs> yeah i love that so much because you, like,
0: you need to send me that i don't i don't i can't find that particular spot uh
1: in okay volume. it's
2: in it's in 12 and it's like i have like all these like sections labeled with just numbers and it's just okay. it's like section 25 of 12. 12. okay yeah anyway uh, i yeah i i just have the the penguin classics saint augustine confessions i don't have
1: yeah chad mine uh, is that that bit uh is for me, 20, uh, 12, 25, 34. I don't know if that's the way you, yours is broken down.
0: Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. The, uh, well, yeah, so uh, I, I I don't know how to find it because neither one of those match up with mine. Huh. But uh, that's a that's a great uh, – it's a, it's a it's a great line. Um, and so to, to sort of return to the question at hand – um here's a here's a better summary of why I think. so my I'll be clear. my contention is that Augustine thinks that it is an appropriate question to ask what is the authorial intent? What did Moses mean? he thinks that that's part of what someone who reads this should do um and so yeah, so I'm not disputing that that and actually, I think to me that's part of why uh, so, I sort of consider myself a uh, a theologian, a little bit along the lines of uh, uh, in this sort of school of ressourcement theology, which is this French movement uh, in the 20th century to go back to the sources, to re to look back and see where we came from, um, to see if it'll help us think through how do we move forward. Mm. Um, and so, like, so part of that would be to say look it's not as if the church fathers had no idea that there was this question what did the author intend um and, you know because some people will say you "Well, know, pre-modern interpretation is flawed because they didn't have the tools and the know-how that we do they didn't you know they just wanted to deny multiple you know uh the, the other gospels they just wanted to destroy anything in which they disagreed with they don't know what we know um and i kind of want to say yeah, they don't know everything that we know for sure. We know things that they don't, but they're not totally like ignorant. Um, and and so in this case, Augustine does. Augustine doesn't know the Wellhausen thesis of multiple authors of uh, of Genesis, but he is aware of the question and the problem of what did the author intend, who was the author, and how do we get there anyway? But I think his response would be, and this is my contention. I think his response would be uh, that. Moses had an intended uh, um, hearing an intended way in which he thought these words might be understood but he but like Trevor said he wants to allow that God might use other people's interpretation differently um and that God might use that to teach truth um and, and which is all a way of saying there the question is not what is the right reading of scripture um, but what are the wrong readings yeah. so there are multiple, there are multiple right readings, but even more wrong readings. Yeah, um, it's not a zero sum game. It's not like you find the one right reading and then we're done. Um, and but but no, we can find multiple. So in my, you know, this will be hard for us to track. But mine says 12, twelve eighteen twenty seven. Um, Augustine says after hearing these arguments and weighing them up, I have no wish to dispute over words. Um, but the law is good for building us up, sort of like Tom said. Um, and I know uh, what were the two commandments on which our teacher hung all the law and the prophets—that is, to love God and love neighbor. And then he says, "O oh God, light to my eyes in dark places. What is there to prevent me ardently, ardently, confessing these things when different interpretation of these words are possible, which may still be true?" Um, so, and then a little bit further down. So while all people are trying to think in the holy scriptures what the author was thinking. What harm is it if they think something that you, the light of every truthful mind, show them is true? Even if the writer they are reading did not think this, though he too was thinking something true, just not the same truth. Um, so, all of this is a way of saying, like, yeah, God could intend something through our interpretation, through our encounter in Scripture, that's not what Moses intended, but is still true. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I can get that. I, I think when I p- put it in the words of, I might have a contention. I was. Uh, I, I, I think I was um, thinking that you were denying. I guess the the authorial intent component. But no, I totally get that. Well,
0: I, I I I actually think I may have said that at one point in the podcast. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I think I might have made, it, and I, I realize that it needs to be nuanced. Yeah, uh, not th- not this particular podcast, but in past ones. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that's wrong.
1: Uh, so if I have said that, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm wrong. Well, um, one, of the, one of the things I like about this kind of uh, kind of kind of where Augustine ends up in this is it's it, it really factors into conversations. That I've had in recent history, um, one with kind of more kind of modern or maybe postmodern Christians, progressive Christians, and one with more traditional, kind of more reformed Christians. That I feel like Augustine ends up falling on different sides from both of those camps. Uh, one is that I often will hear kind of the the postmodernist types, kind of the the progressive types. Say something like, you know, that the historical grammatical approach or this concern with authorial intent or whatever. I I, I mean, I don't know what I mean. They say lots of things about it, but there's always this implication that it's somehow unintellectual and which I I can see why they might say that. But here's the big thing. They, They seem to want to try to insist on on saying that it wasn't a part of the tradition of the church that it wasn't a component of the way earlier church thinkers thought, almost as if what they're doing is returning to um, with kind of their, you know, kind of these newer models of of interpretation as if they're returning to um, kind of the older, more traditional thing. And they want to blame uh, evangelicals in the late 1800s and early 20th century uh, for kind of coming up with this, this insistence on clinging to authorial intent. Um, And then they say the same thing about evangelical views of inerrancy, right? Um, But one of the things that Augustine said in this text very, I think very clearly is that whatever is Moses's intent couldn't be wrong. Now, I think you can question inerrancy, like in terms of trying to bring up passages and and debating whether they contradict or, you know, things of that nature, that's a different question. But here I'm talking about the nature of what these early Christians believed. And Augustine here affirms that the author's intent is infallible or, um, and, you know, of course, he doesn't pack it with the same kind of theological baggage that people would carry with it today. He's just saying they can't be wrong, they're faithful, they're true. And my big problem is that so many of these these kind of more, you know, kind of forward thinking Christians are saying, oh, that's not the way they thought back then. And I, I just I just disagree. And on the flip side, there is this kind of sense kind of on the more conservative, traditional, maybe reformed way of thinking that that somebody like Augustine would interpret the scripture in, as having one clear meaning, as if he would avoid allegory, as if he would deny the idea that God gives special, distinct revelation to you, you know what I mean, as an individual, yeah. which he clearly does. I mean, he, he frequently talks about God's, and I can't remember the term he uses, but God's personal revelation of these things. Speaking in his inner ear, I think, is the word he uses, which totally flies in the face of kind of that more... Uh, evangelical reformed kind of kind of take anyway just just a thought yeah
2: that's interesting i i hadn't really thought of it as being between two camps but um just because i was sort of only thinking of the one camp in my mind because i i grew up in a camp that said basically there was only sort of one way to figure out the bible and There was definitely one meaning and and so i was just thinking of it that way i hadn't i i don't spend a lot of time i i haven't really read like a lot of like what i guess would be deemed progressive theology um i haven't really read any of that stuff but it's uh, what interests me about augustine's approach is that he's in a way He's in a relationship to, especially Genesis, being old as it is, he's in a relationship to Genesis as, like, sort of we are to the New Testament. And um, so the, my big takeaway was, like, why... He's basically saying, why, why be uncharitable to both whoever the author was, you know, in this case, he, he believes it's Moses... And also, and then why be uncharitable to your sort of fellow um, Christians who are reading this and thinking about it? And um, I, I don't know that the thing that's lacking for me, the thing that I'm still like kind of annoyed about um, is I don't know what, with what he's like testing as long as because he, he says things like, well, as long as they, you know, sort of stick to a truth and then i'm like okay i don't i still don't know how he's gauging whether how it comes out true or not but other than that he's basically saying that that seems to be his only standard as long as they get the truth then it's fine that they came up with another interpretation and um it's it's an inspiring way of looking at it because like that's how sort of he he has this long you know he has the ages of time between him and genesis we have quite a Ways now between us and uh, New Testament writers, so it's interesting. Um, I, I guess I'm just saying I'm taking it as an inspiration, as an approach, and yet I'm also left hanging. I'm like, so Augustine, so what? How do you judge whether it's true at the end of the day? Like, and that part I'm still a little lost on, but.
0: Well, so the question of how you judge that it's true is maybe where – yeah, like it's sort of problematic maybe. um, And it's also (laughs) – you might think it's a divergence from – you might think it's a divergence from – The like, I don't know, like modern approaches to understanding the truth, like evangelicals or something, Uh. because he says in he's so in order to figure out what he thinks is true, he thinks that it should uh, accord with the rule of faith. Um, and so, uh, and why I say this might be might be problematic. Um, Augustine says in De Doctrina uh, Christiana, in Book One, he says if your interpretation of a biblical passage does not build up the twin love of God and neighbor, um, then it's wrong. And that's a little bit overly reductive, I think, of what would it mean for something to be true. Um, and so I think you know, so I I could see why you wouldn't like that. But he thinks, in terms of what we preach from the scriptures, it should build up love of God and neighbor. So ultimately, you know, how he puts all this together um, is is going to be a little bit harder. Um, and and I, I think that people don't like that because it feels either really simplistic um, or, um, you know, maybe, you know, you could play fast and loose with what you mean by love. Um, yeah, but but that's I mean, that's the beginning of his response. So he think and I, I, what he wants his multiple interpretation thing to do is create entry points for various people. Um, so, so he thinks that uh, multiple levels and readings. So, in earlier in Book Six, he says uh, he quotes Paul uh, and and says he learns from Ambrose that the law kills, uh, but the spirit gives life. Or the, le- uh, the the letter kills, but the spirit gets life, gives life. And so he thinks that there's a spiritual way of reading that gives life in the text. Um, and and that and and that is a way to move beyond just um what you know. Uh, for, for instance, the one that he uses is um, uh, the Good Samaritan. And he says the story of the Good Samaritan isn't just a story um, about how you should love your neighbor. It's partly that. But it has layers and it's also about how the church should um, you know as as, as sort of a, as a higher way of saying this is how the church should care about all people and he he goes into deeper levels and deeper meanings. Jesus never says anything about the church. Um, it's not clearly part of the passage. But Augustine says it's still true, nonetheless, uh, because uh, because it accords with the twin love of God and neighbor. Then anyway, um, I, I, that's that's my quick response. But it's it is it is hard to suss out, you know, how that that twin love of God and neighbor um, is the only way to know what's true.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, because what? So to take that passage as an example, and imagine and this isn't hard to imagine because it's definitely been done. Some, you know, like liberal pastor, theologically liberal pastor says, well, maybe politically liberal as well, uses like the Good Samaritan story in order to say, you know, what's being done at the Mexico border is unjust because clearly the Samaritan was like, you know, a, a different race than you and you should still take. I don't know. I've heard things like this, for example. I, I wonder, I, I guess basically, when, whenever I hear people give, especially their, basically their own political beliefs, um, backing via the scripture, I, yeah, I find myself, I don't know, I find myself, yeah, just, obviously we could ask the the questions of what the author intended and all that, but like, if if we got, we're in this nice, like now we're in this loosey goosey mode where, well, as long as God shows him something true, um, shows him a true meaning, that's, that's fine. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to tell someone that's clearly not what was <laughs> the point of that. Um, you know, maybe if, if that's even, maybe that's something we can't say, but, but then again, maybe I, I was just now I've just now I'm free associating a little bit, but you did just make me think. If, if, for example, giving your political opinion and backing with scripture sort of sows discord, maybe it would go against Augustine's standard in that case, because it's not sort of increasing love of neighbor. I don't know.
0: So, oh, I was gonna say, Tom, do you have a response to the question of what does it mean to search for truth if you say that you know it must accord with the rule of truth uh, or the canon of faith? and the twin love of God and neighbor. Like, yeah, I don't know. Thoughts on on that kind of way of understanding it.
1: Thoughts in terms of what I believe or thoughts in terms of what Augustine thought? Because I don't know that I could add anything on Augustine's part. I was left kind of like with Trevor um, confused on that subject, right? So it wasn't really clear to me how, you know, he he did that. In terms of what I believe, I don't know that I have – real clarity either I just got done finished reading Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling and that throws a whole kink in this whole thing right because it's like like in Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling he just highlights essentially the fact that you know there's this actually he doesn't use these words but like for me I've historically told people who've asked me The question, how do they know God's word or how can they know God is speaking to them or communicating truth to them? I've always one of the components I've said is compare it to the Bible, compare it to the word of God and make sure it's not inconsistent with that. I know that there's more to it than that, but it's at least that. Right. And um, (laughs) uh, what Kierkegaard points out is you can't use that line of reasoning with Abraham. God told Abraham, go kill his son, and that literally contradicts God's what we know of God's moral like character and his specific written will, which I know it hadn't the, the law of Moses hadn't been given yet, but nonetheless, right? I mean, we know you're not allowed to kill your kid. And if some Christian came up to me and said, I think God's telling me to kill my son, we'd go we know he's not he would never contradict his word you know so i don't know i don't i don't personally like it, that's just something i've been meditating on lately how the prophets were often called to do things that that would have flown in the face of what we know to be good and right and true right isaiah is called to go to egypt and preach naked Uh, against the Egyptians as a metaphor, right? To to say, hey, you guys are going to be taken naked in slavery. And I would, I think, if a believer came up to me and said that they thought that God was calling them to go to Nevada and get naked and preach in Nevada, I would say, I don't think he's doing that because that seems contrary to his word. Or Hosea, who is called to marry a prostitute, who he knows is going to cheat on him, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it's like you know that's that's what Kierkegaard is wrestling with in Fear and Trembling, and and what this did is it kind of threw my own mind kind of into confusion on the subject of how do I know or how can one know when God is speaking to them, right? And with that, I I just kind of have to throw my hands up, uh, and I, I only bring that up because I myself have some kind of confusion on that, but also. I think that casts question on uh, Augustine's own answer to that question.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I think, think it's a... It's a, a,
1: a oh, no. Bro. Why are Why we are doing it? this? Yes. Can you
0: um, can you guys hear me fine? Yeah, yes. guys, Am I yeah. bouncing back at yeah. all? Yep. Okay, I just muted my uh, computer while I'm going to talk. So um, I'm going to say what I'm going to say and delete this. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, for some reason I'm getting feedback. Um, so I was, uh, I would say that Augustine's response to this problem, uh, like that you raised well, Tom, about, uh... You know, how do we know? And you said, "Return to." How do we know if God is speaking? And we return to Scripture and the prophets and this sort of thing. I mean, Augustine, for for Augustine and for um, a lot of the early Church fathers, uh, they would say, "Return to the rule of faith." And in a sense, part of that is return to the Church. Like we're reading this text in community, and so what Augustine is sort of doing, he's he's circumscribing the conversation to say. He, you know, he absolutely rules out uh, that God is a part of nature. So part of what he does is he says the Manichees are wrong. The Manichees are not the church, um, and they are not building up love of God um, and in, in their reading of the Old Testament. So they're not really helpful dialogue partners in trying to figure out what this means to be true. But he does allow for some people who say, Look, I, I believe in the Trinity as understood in the Apostles' Creed, you could say, or I under I, I believe in this God as as Christians have um have discussed God and in, you know and and enumerated it uh in the creeds, but I still have this question about what maybe Moses intended. And Augustine's sort of saying it's sort of fair game there, and we should have a conversation about what this means. Um it's it's not just um it's not like you know it's not everybody who gets a say in what it means uh but but there are multiple people who do and so my my sort of thought is we should never forget that scripture is always meant to be read in community i do think there's kind of a question about whether or not only, like, does God only ever give one person one reading, you know, to do this thing? Um, I, I, you know, my my uh my tendency would be to say like, if someone says they want to go to Nevada to do this crazy thing, you made the exact like exact right comparison, and said I would caution them against it, and I because part of what what that what you're showing is is that. Scripture and how we understand God to be leading us is always done in the community, and that's what we call the church. Um, and so, I, you know, I tend to think that that's a, a better frame for even this conversation is Augustine saying that truth is that thing which we understand while reading the scriptures, while looking for God to speak to us, and while discussing it. Uh, with other people who are part of this community of love, um, which is the
1: Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's so funny that you answer with community because that's precisely I mean I think you're probably right in terms of what uh, uh, of what uh, Augustine would say, but that's precisely where <laughs> Kierkegaard would just crap all over you. <laughs> <laughs> right? because well, that's right, he's trying to, to respond to his
0: danish is... context what's that he's trying to respond to his danish context
1: yeah but i mean you know kierkegaard i mean kierkegaard's argument is dude abraham had no community around him when he got that command he couldn't tell anybody he had to do it all by himself it was just him And if he'd shared it with anybody, they would have done everything in their power to stop him, which would have prevented him from doing the commandment of God. And so what, you know, what Kierkegaard holds up is that our highest telos, like our end purpose or goal would be to become a single individual like Abraham, not somebody in the community. It just, I mean, I'm not saying he's right at all. I just just thought that was kind of a funny, it's, it's kind of a funny contrast to have that answer in light of Kierkegaard, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what uh, Dostoevsky doesn't
0: say, right? Dostoevsky says that's the problem, right? We do, you know, uh, in, that, in, in so far as like his response to Ivan, I take to be sort of a uh, in the rebellion section um, is like, yeah, the or uh, I should say the Grand Inquisitor, the passage after rebellion, um, is it's nuts to go off being on your own to be the only authority. I mean, in a way, like, I, I think Kierkegaard, I like Kierkegaard, the stuff that I've read from Kierkegaard, which I can't say is that much, um, but the, sex- the the stuff that I have read, I like. But I do wonder if you know, that ultimately doesn't lead to a kind of individualism that, that is sort of actually what we're suffering from. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I think um, it does. Right.
1: I think it really does, yeah. for sure.
0: Uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, but because I, I also saw on your Twitter that you were uh, getting ready to read uh, Brothers Karamazov, right? So, yeah, we are to, reading it,
2: yep. To get back to your... The response then basically that you think Augustine gives Chad um, if we have to return to well or sorry if we have to sort of put ourselves in the community of faith um, in order to kind of stay on the straight and narrow you might say um, make sure we don't like wander too far away from the truth I mean w- then I think that you've got to be really against splitting into these separate communities. You you should try to maintain the same, you know, community as 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 strongly as you can. I mean, in some way you've got to try to like keep people in the fold to keep them in the truth. But so I guess what how did he deal with the fact that even in his day he had these splinter groups? Like if the man did the keys like I mean if the keys storm out, I guess there's nothing he could do about that. But he seems to have a more antagonistic approach to the Mannekees. He had splintering going on in his time. So how does he deal with this given that the community is so important for maintaining the sort of keeping people in the true faith?
0: Uh, well, the first response is that when I use the Manichees as an example, oh. they are never a part of the fold, um, right? So, I mean, the Manichees are – some people call them a form of Gnostic. I, it's it's On some level, the term Gnostic is unhelpful because um, it's not very specific. Uh, but what, whatever they are, they were never really a part of the church. Uh, the question would be the Donatists – who are very close uh, to being part of the church. But uh, you know, they, they, that, the Donatist controversy um, is uh, what do we do with people who turned over scriptures uh, to the persecutors of Christians and those that sort of abandoned their faith in the time of persecution? And are they, uh, are they part of the same church as we are? And they kind of didn't want anyone who'd been baptized um, or who was under a bishop – who had uh, handed over scripture or abandoned the faith. They didn't want them to be a part of the church anymore. They wanted to kick them out. Um, And Augustine is always for unity. Um, So Augustine's goal is always to, Trevor, and you're exactly right. Augustine's goal is if you're a Christian, you just have to stay together. You just have to stay together um, we have to keep this unified. Um, and he, both of them think that they're following Cyprian who we read years ago now, um, on the unity of the church. Um, but that, that, that appeal and desire okay. for unity is critical for Augustine. Um, okay. So I wanted to turn in, like, we need to probably wrap up pretty quick, but, um, I just wanted to, you know, sort of mention that at the beginning of, of book thirteen, Augustine answers a question that he asks in book one, uh, which he quoting uh, uh, Romans ten. He says, uh, "How does uh, let's see? Oh shoot! Now I'm going to get it wrong, and uh, I, I don't have my first half with me. Uh, but he, but basically." Uh, Paul makes this point, how do we um, call on one if we don't know their name, and how are we supposed to know who they are without hearing preaching? That's a really rough paraphrase. Um, and Augustine sort of asks these questions in book one, and then at the beginning of book 13, he thinks that he's answering this question, how how do we call on God? How do we pray to God? Um, and then he says in the first line of book 13, oh my God, my mercy, I invoke you in prayer, for you made me when I forgot you, you did not forget me. I invoke you, I call on, you know, the Latin word is I call on you to enter my soul which you are making ready to receive you by means of the, by means of the desire that you have breathed into it. Um, so he's saying, I mean, in a sense, he uh, he's saying that God is the one who actually prepares the soul to call God into it. Um, so breathed into it into it is a form of, uh, of like that's that's uh it's he's b- like drawing on Genesis, uh, one where God or Genesis two, excuse me, where God breathes into Adam, um, and he's saying basically it begins with God and then we respond to God, um, uh, and so yeah, and and the you you are making me ready to receive you by means of the desire. Um, so, for, for Augustine, this new desire is the charity um, that we get through the Holy Spirit um, and ultimately in the church. And so, I mean, I'm basically going to argue, you know, I basically think that, you know, the important part about Book 13 is the place of the church um, and that that is where we learn to see the world correctly uh, as God with the Creator. Um, and, and part of what he's trying to do, he'll, he uses these weird phrases where he calls the scripture the firmament. Um, and he basically sort of saying, you know, we look at the world differently, uh, because of the Holy spirit, because of the love that we have been given by God first. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's part of how he's trying to bring this, um, this full circle because even, and then he says a little further down, because even before I began to exist, you existed the, and so my little phrase that I use is, the question for Augustine is not, does God exist, but do we exist? Because um, he wants to get to the place where the existence of God is more certain than the existence of uh, of individual people. And it's a little bit of a rhetorical device. I, I don't know that we could literally say that that's you know, the case, but
1: yeah. And is but that I, is that yours, Chad, or is that directly from the text? Because no. I didn't remember reading that in the text.
2: No, no, that's me. Okay. I say that. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you know what?
1: I, I do got to say... Oh, I was just oh gonna no, say, sorry. You go ahead, Trevor. That
2: idea, if if that's like what Augustine's going for, it's sort of anti-Cartesian cartesian in a way. And that's sort <laughs> of affected modern thinking ever since Descartes is sort of like the only thing you can be sure of is your own existence, at least in epistemology. So I anyway, I just really liked that, that it's opposes it in that way but anyway yeah
1: yeah the um uh the the whole of book 13 is kind of a slog for me i didn't i didn't really know what he was going for i mean the whole thing he's allegorically interpreting genesis one and the various phases of creation and i don't know i mean i don't I don't want to like try to, I mean, you know, I had a professor at Boise state who used to say, you don't piss on the big boys. Like you don't go around and you don't act like the great ones in history. Didn't know what they were talking about, but, and I, I'm not going to say that about Augustine, but I'm telling you his, his interpretations just seemed random. Like he just, I, I didn't see connections between a good chunk of what he was explaining and and it's almost as if they were just impressions that just hit him in the moment. Um, you know, he would put together lists of threes to mimic something from Genesis 1. And I don't know. I, I didn't see how they connected or why they connected. It was, it was a rough one for me, book 13. <laughs> I think it is supposed to be anti-Cartesian, though, Trevor. <laughs> um,
0: and, and another place he says, uh, in in I've, I've probably mentioned this before, but what's sometimes called Augustine's uh, cogito is um, nisi fallor ego sum. Unless I am de- uh, uh, because I am deceased or since I am deceived, I know that I am. So since he knows that he can be wrong, um, he knows that he does actually exist. And I always say that's like well, there must be something to him that is more certain than himself um, so that he knows that he is in fact wrong. Um, and so that that's how I read that. And yeah, so I take him to be the opposite of Descartes, uh, but because I think, I mean, yeah, I, I think we societally feel the effects of, of, of Descartes in that we all think that um, we're the, as, as David Foster Wallace says, um, we're the kings of our own skull-sized kingdoms. Um and uh but uh but to tom's point yeah i mean it's it is it's tough uh i i think it it is it is allegorical and augustine does think uh that there's legitimacy to reading beyond what 21st or 20th century people want to call literal um that said augustine does not deny that there were a little literal adam and eve and these sorts of things augustine uh I I tend to think what we mean by literal is actually historical. Um, when we say that we're reading the text literally, um, usually we mean something like we're reading it historically. Um, and so, because uh, Augustine and Origen for that matter, think that they can read the biblical text literally and literally get a figurative yeah. interpretation. <laughs> um, that is they read it, to the letter, they take account of every letter and every word in the text. It, none of it is in vain. It's all there for a reason. They are reading it literally to the letter, um, and they think the way to read it literally in some cases is to read it also allegorically. Um, hmm. So,
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I I mean, I use a real simple definitions for literal and allegorical. Literal meaning that there's no metaphor being employed. Allegorical, there is a metaphor being employed. Um, I, you know, and so I don't mind and This is beyond meta, the question of metaphor though, too. For that well, yeah. Well, I don't mind a metaphoric interpretation. That's not really my beef with Augustine here. Yeah. Um, I don't mind allegory. Uh, but the thing about an allegory is for it to work, it has to resonate. Like there has to be something that you read and you go, oh my gosh, that does connect to what that is saying. And that is super insightful. And at that level, for me anyway, on this reading, and maybe in future readings it won't be the same, this failed dramatically, spectacularly. (laughs) Nothing he said in any way resounded with me in regards to the text. Like, there was nothing where I was like, oh my gosh, that is such an impressive insight. Like, instead it was, how in the world does he get that connection? It was really that. I mean, it's not a general problem with the use of allegory per se as much as I just take it to be a really bad allegory. Uh, as far as I can tell, I mean, my mind wandered because I was kind of bored with it, so yeah. maybe if I were to go back and like maybe be a little more focused while I was reading, maybe that would change, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we could also, like, I, I, I said this at the beginning, uh, we're coming a little bit full circle, uh, that is, there's also probably a reason that he tried, there's also probably a reason that he tried to explain Genesis five times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Cause he just never <laughs> thinks he gets it right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Yep.
2: Um,
0: well, I, uh, so I kind of quoted my love is my weight. Um, that's another famous passage. Um, and uh, I don't think my father-in-law listens to this podcast, but he used that quote from Augustine in my wedding uh, because uh, he, he did the wedding sermon and, uh, he knows that I love augustine so he gave he gave a great wedding sermon uh, and he quoted Bonhoeffer and Augustine uh, for me um, in my wedding sermon so I appreciate that That's so true. if he's listening uh just wanted to throw that out there the other thing I put a little note in uh in our rundown for the episode about divine simplicity um so I, I don't know if we really want to talk about sort of classical theism or divine simplicity but uh, in certain evangelical circles, this is making a comeback. Um, and I, I don't know, if, have we talked about it too much here?
1: Mm, probably at some point, because I feel like, I mean, yes, yeah. not in Augustine, but certainly on the podcast, because yeah, it's come up I've in the past. i recently
2: yeah. there was sort of an exchange between Eleanor Stump uh, at your school, Chad, and um, I forget who, who the other... Who the interlocutor was now, but she, she had a talk, um, you can actually find it publicly on YouTube, talking about the supposed God of the philosophers versus the God of scripture. And she was sort of defending the idea that the God of classical theism, as it's sometimes described, especially in philosophy, um, is is actually sort of the God of scripture and that these, these things aren't inconsistent. But... I've, I saw like, yeah, people posting things on Reddit on like our theology and stuff and on these different places on the internet where people are, yeah, seemingly starting to take issue with, um, sort of the classic triple O being, as we sometimes say, um, that being omniscience, om- omnipotence and, um, omnibenevolence. As sometimes people call it but what was what's I think I think I don't know if this is real maybe so I would like to hear your impressions but I think what's sort of inspiring it is that this so so-called open and relational theology is becoming like really big right now And so in a way it denies or maybe modifies you might say God's omniscience in a way um, so I yeah it's I was very. I don't know i liked seeing the simplicity being here in the in this passage i thought it was and i thought the explanation of it seems to also imply a changeless god like an immutable god which that's also now like a really hot topic given the sort of open and relational theology so um, I don't really have anything more to say about, like, I have nothing to say about Gustin's opinion other than just like li- I liked seeing Augustine say it because I think I I lean more toward classical theism, but
1: but yeah, it is a hot topic now. Interesting, I didn't realize it was a hot topic. I I mean, I always kind of accepted it because I think for the same reason you do. You just mentioned Trevor. I do lean towards classical theism. I at the same time have always wondered. And I don't think – and I'm not saying the arguments aren't out there. I just have never interacted with them. Why we've just assumed or at least concluded as kind of a base fact that God is a simple being, which for all those of you out there who don't understand what that means, um, it's kind of hard to define, but technically means it's not – he doesn't – he's not composed of parts. So don't think it means like simple as in easy to understand or something like that, but rather that there are not parts or components to him. He's not, um, you know, he, he doesn't have, like like I do, I have arms, I have legs, I'm composed of cells and things of that nature, that God isn't of such substance, that he is simply and purely God. There's no half God or component of yeah, the divine, of God the divine kind of substance
2: thing. is supposed to be in some way uh, perfectly unified or a perfect unity Yeah.
0: Well, and um, I mean, yeah, uh, I would say that I was introduced to classical theism as a philosopher as well, and we defined it like Trevor did with the three O God. Although I would add that, from at least the Augustinian and really the broader, uh, I, you have to say sort of Platonic or Greek conception of God, uh, you have to include in those uh, impassibility, um, immutability, and simplicity, uh, which are. You know, maybe in maybe those are constitutive elements of the omniscience, omnipresence, um, and omnibenevolence. I wasn't aware of it as an undergrad. We probably tried to define it t- too restrictively to those three O's that Trevor described. Uh, but I I later learned uh, that that it should also include these other elements, which were important to uh, important to like sort of just broader uh, philosophical categories in the world right, Augustine yeah. lived in. um but yeah so i think i mean i think a lot of the problems with uh the classical theism are the god 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 feels too other um so too far beyond us which in what some ways is exactly augustine's point uh and and that's what the incarnation does um so yes the the sense in which god and god's self is beyond us is exactly what he wants to say, but God uh, in the economy of salvation is precisely for us. Um, so, you know, I, I, th- I think that classical uh, theology and, and philosophy uh, really handle these elements fine, uh, but modern people who read them feel like, oh, well, I want to relate, a-, like Trevor said, a relatable God, or, you know, this makes God seem like he doesn't care. Uh, you know, and, and it, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, they really have the problem with divine apathy um, and, uh, you know, because of, of what that means for God's changelessness. And um, yeah, I don't know. I've seen people take issue with that. And I just want to say, well, you're really not understanding what <laughs> is being claimed. It's not that God has no love for us. Clearly, God does. It's just not understood in the kind of, um, <laughs> I was going to say, pathetic categories. Uh, but that, that can be misconstrued. I mean, those in which are subject to passions, um, not those that are like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, pathetic is, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, that would be Augustine's. All right. Um, let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's just finish. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guys, uh, get the last couple words, uh, any, any takeaways that you had from the last year and a half or from this book that you, uh, wanted to bring up? or wanted to say any reflections on the
1: this, this book? Um, It's hard to kind of process the last year and a half, thinking through the various things we talked about. Kind of hard to remember much. I mean, I remember the story arc of Augustine's life, um, but to kind of, you know, concisely, you know, crystallize it in one particular kind of retrospective is a little difficult uh, just kind of to think back. Um, I think if I was going to kind of settle on a final word, it would be that what I, I guess it would be this. Having read this book, um I, I will say that Christian... I don't know if if we should call it theology because that's, I mean, what our podcast is um, or Christian writing or, I mean, I don't know. It it transcended through this book, like in Augustine and in this book, Christian writing transcended in a way that I can't even, I, I, I just can't even comprehend. Like all this stuff we've read up to this point has basically been softball or little league or, um, I mean or in black and white I feel like when I' in reading this book, I feel like we made the shift to color TV or uh, cable television you know it's like all of everything is so much more alive than anything else we've read um I feel like we broke out of I mean i I bet you if we look back at all of the 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 readings that we discussed over the last few years that we've been doing this podcast, I bet you that if we kind of categorized everything, we could break down almost every podcast into like, maybe, what, maybe six different discussions, right, about things like like the nature of the Trinity. I mean, how many podcasts, and this is not a critique of us, it's just what they were writing about, you know. How many podcasts were devoted to just that, the, the idea of God being one person, or sorry, one God, three in person, one essence, three in person and what that could mean to be able to break out of some of those categories and to launch into new things, new considerations, new theological contemplations, and to be able to see it as it works in a one individual's life in a real way. Like you just read Augustine and felt like he was a walking, living, breathing human who is just fundamentally like we are. And and that was amazing. And I hope that everybody that we will read from this point forward builds on the breakthroughs that Augustine made, Um, but I feel like that probably won't be the case. I feel like there will probably be a lot more regression than there is progression. But, yeah, so those are, yeah, yeah, I'd say those are kind of my thoughts.
2: Up until this point, we almost read, like, technical theses. Like, I was reading someone's, like, dissertation almost or or there was the other then there was this category of readings that were just sort of like really strange stories um as well I guess is how I might kind categor- well I'm thinking back to like the, the shepherd of Hermes or anywho um but this felt like approachable I guess is the best way to say it but it was it's something i would assign to freshman philosophy students that's how i feel like i used to have the stereotype in my head that everyone's forced to read some augustine and it's and it was like a like a i don't know like completely unnecessary thing to do and i'll be honest in my own mind i, I always thought why would you assign them that? There's better philosophers. There's better philosophy. <laughs> and I know that there's a theology podcast, but I can't mm-hmm. help but think of this in terms of philosophy and and especially because I, I might actually finally be teaching my own course and deciding what the students need to read this coming summer. And I I can't help but think I now see why this is assigned. This is great. in so many ways, Augustine somehow, and it, you know, and this is a part also due to the translation you get, but is somehow very readable and easy to understand. And yeah, seems just like a normal person who can convey like very meaningful and philosophically important messages. They're just sort of given us thoughts in a really like inner monologue and also sort of prayerful way um yeah so i overall thumbs up i guess that's my my reflection at the end like it's, it, it's worth reading <laughs> <laughs>
0: um yeah well i i i think uh i like like tom's use of going from black and white to color and uh, and Trevor, to respond, you know, like of course the the difference between philosophy and theology at this point in time are are minimal, and so especially because usually if the ancient Christians use the term theology, they mean God and God's self, um, and which we have much broader categories for what theology is. Um, but they also think that what they're doing is just divine theology, um, and or excuse me, divine philosophy. Um, so they think that they are do you know they would basically broadly consider themselves philosophers. Yeah, um, for sure, from across the Mediterranean. Uh, but uh, yeah, well, good. I'm I'm glad we enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I to to sort of Tom's point, like hopefully you know we'll probably regress some. I was trying to think in my head of anybody else that we could read that even has sort of as remotely accessible reflections uh, and. i mean we could read saint patrick's confessions but they're interesting (laughs) but just boring uh in some ways like i mean there's just not there really isn't anything quite like this
1: for a long time um yeah um are we gotta let everybody know what we're gonna be reading next huh yeah, so I think we're. Uh, yeah, do you? I mean, I think we're going to try to do. Uh, hopefully,
0: I, you know, I don't know when exactly, but uh, in the next month or so or something, uh, we will have uh, we will record on uh, uh, record an episode on Jerome's on the perpetual virginity of Mary of Mary. So we're going to think about uh, you know Roman Catholic ideas about Mary, um, how those are the same or different uh, from Protestant construals, and where does where, like, I mean, in a way, we can sort of say, where does Marian devotion come from? Uh, we haven't talked so much about Theotokos and Christotokos and uh, the controversies around Chalcedon in the mid fifth century yet, uh, but we'll, that will be a later conversation. But yeah, we'll get we'll get to this question of what is Mary's role, uh-huh. sort of.